You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. So we have a question before us. The question is straightforward, though it's not necessarily one we ask frequently. The question is a why question, and the question is, why does God want an ethnically diverse church? Paul has said unquestionably that God desires a global, multinational, multi-ethnic church. And in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he explains how God gets that. In, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he explains how God goes about creating for himself an ethnically diverse people. And Paul explains this in detail. He acknowledges the fact of ethnic hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And we spent a lot of time uh, reflecting on this together and, and how Ethnic hostility is not exclusive to Jews and Gentiles. They had a lot of it going on in the first century, but it's really something that's been an issue throughout the centuries. Before Paul wrote, after Paul wrote, we all considered some of the ways we've observed and seen and experienced ethnic hostility in our own context, in our own city perhaps, and certainly in our country. And Paul acknowledges that reality, past, present, future, and he insists unequivocally and explicitly that the cross of Jesus Christ is aimed at the heart of that conflict. Jesus died, Paul says, to destroy the wall of hostility that has been erected between ethnic groups. And we spend some time thinking about how you know, we talk a lot about the cross, and we talk a lot about the individual implications of the cross, and those are good and right and true. And we will hold on to the good news of the gospel as the power of God for our salvation to regenerate new, spiritual, born-again life in us as individuals. But if we stop there, we miss the broad scope of the work of God. All thy works shall praise thy name. And one of God's works is the salvation of individuals. And that exists for the purpose of the reconciliation of the nations. So the scope of the work of Christ on the cross is greater than we realize initially. That's all about the how. God wants a multi-ethnic people. Here's how He gets it through Jesus through the cross. You may have noticed as you read through Ephesians that you come to the end of chapter 2 and you've got a lot of how questions getting answered, but you haven't got a why question answered yet. We find that God wants this sort of people, a multinational, global, multi-ethnic, reconciled people, but why does He want it? And that's the question that comes up in Ephesians 3, and that's the reason that question is driving our reflections on Ephesians 3 today. And the thing that we will see 
as we read through Ephesians 3 slowly together today, the thing that we will discover again and again and again, all of it comes together to this one central reality. For Paul, the diversity of God's people magnifies the variety of God's wisdom. Hold on to that. If you want to know why we have church, that's the answer to the question. If you want to know why Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, it is because the diversity of God's people magnifies the variety of God's wisdom. Now it takes a little bit of time to get there. We'll start where Paul starts at the beginning of chapter 3. He starts with his calling. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, this is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Whatever he's doing, it must be serious. I don't know about you, but I rarely describe myself as a prisoner of anyone. But for Paul, this is a dominant framework of his identity. Hey, Paul, tell us about yourself. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Everything in my being is solely devoted to this one purpose. Everything that I do, every decision I make, every strategy that I implement, every prayer that I pray, everything I do, Paul says, is aimed at this. And this is the reason. Well, what's the reason? Well, he's just rehearsed it. Jesus died to reconcile Jew and Gentile. Jesus died to reconcile ethnic groups in himself, to take the hostility that exists, to tear it down, and to build one people of multiple ethnicities in himself. So you got unity in Jesus, diverse ethnicities. And Paul says, all of that stuff I just said in the second half of chapter 2, all of that about what Jesus has accomplished through the cross, all of that about what the gospel is for, all of it, this is the reason I'm a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words. Right, so go back and read what I said, Paul says, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. So two things about Paul's calling that we need to be clear about. Number one is his motivation. He is motivated to preach the gospel to the Gentiles because he believes with his full being that Jesus died to create a Jew plus Gentile people. That's Abraham's family and all of us and everyone else. This is why Jesus died. Yes, Jesus died to forgive my sins. Yes, Jesus died to reconcile me to God. Yes, Jesus died to raise my body from the dead on the day of his return. Yes, 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 but he didn't die just for that. He died, Paul says, in Ephesians 2.14, to break down the wall of hostility between the nations. Jews, Gentiles, and among the Gentiles. So that's Paul's motivation. And it's a big motivation. I mean, when you think about who this guy was before he met Jesus, 
He had it all going for him. He was an up-and-comer. He was a power player. He had all the right connections. He had such good connections, he could go and like, arrest people and drag them off in chains. And he wasn't a part of an official group. The Pharisees are more like a grassroots organization. Kind of like, a, you know, hey, let's get some people together and try to put pressure on the powers that be. That's the group he was in, but he was so well-connected and they were so good at their networking and pressure-making that he could basically go and haul Christians off in chains and everybody was cool with that. He was powerful. He was influential. People were afraid of him. You read Acts. And then one day he met Jesus. And he walked away from his life of power and influence to become a prisoner of the resurrected Messiah because he believed with all of his heart that the nations, Ephesians 3, 6, have become fellow heirs in the promises of God to Abraham. That's his motivation, and that's the mystery. A reading of which, verse 4, will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. All right, Paul, I would love to perceive your understanding of the mystery of Christ. Now, when we talk, let me say this quickly before we talk about the mystery. We have a sort of definition of mystery, and it's the sort of thing that, you know, you, you get a mystery novel or a mystery movie or uh, my kids like to play Clue, like Colonel Mustard in the billiard room with the rope kind of thing, right? You solve a mystery, like a murder mystery or a crime mystery. That's not what Paul's talking about here. In Greek, the word mystery is about a secret that's been revealed. It's mysterious because nobody knows what it is until God unveils it. And so when Paul's talking about the mystery, you know, we can get kind of confused as if like, well, there's some clues and we've got to figure this out. That's not what's going on here. There's some secret purpose of God, His wisdom, His counsel that He has not made abundantly clear until Jesus shows up. And now that Jesus has showed up, the mystery is no longer a mystery. It's unveiled and it's clear and it's out there. And Paul is articulating it for us. And what, Paul, we ask, because yes, we do want to perceive the mystery what is it? He says in verse 6, here's what it is. The Gentiles, the nations, us, have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Heirs to what? Heirs to the promises God gave to Abraham. I'm going to give you a big family. I'm going to use your family to bless the nations. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless you with fruitfulness. I'm going to bless you with a land. I'm going to use you as my instrument to bless every family in the world. And in the seeds of that promise, it wasn't clear to everyone immediately, but you get that multinational kind of hint. I'm going to use your family to bless all the other families, but it wasn't this out front obvious thing that everybody just realized. But when Jesus showed up, when the Messiah came, Paul says the mystery was disclosed. The secret was revealed. And it is that the time has come for the nations all the way over to Hope Hole, Alabama to be grafted in to Abraham's family. And all of the covenant that goes with that. And you remember at the middle of chapter 2 when 
Paul talks about how the Gentiles were, apart from Christ, uh, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God in the world. That's Ephesians 2.12. All of that has been reconciled now. The Gentiles, the nations, us, Americans, have been brought into, incorporated, adopted into Abraham's family. Paul says that is the mystery that has been disclosed, and that is his motivation. It drives him. It drives everything he does. That's why he's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why he left Jerusalem and his power player up and coming, you know, upwardly mobile Pharisaic life to go and live a dangerous life of church planting bivocationally all over the Roman Empire. That's some serious motivation. And it it causes me to reflect sometimes about my motivations. Like, why am I in this? And what am I after? And do I share Paul's motivation? Or is there something else going on? And maybe we should all be asking that question. So for Paul, the mystery that has been revealed is that the nations, the nations, have become partakers in the promises of God to Israel. Now Paul, in answering the why question, relates that group, that sort of people, that Jew plus Gentile people of God, that multinational, multi-ethnic people of God, he relates that to God's character and His wisdom and His nature. And This is where we begin to see that God is so deeply concerned about a multi-ethnic people because it is bound up in the way he is known and it is bound up with the way his glory is magnified and is bound up with the way he extends his goodness to us. So verse 7, the mystery in relation to the Trinity. Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to do what? To bring to the nations, the Gentiles, the news of the boundless riches of Christ. So you can imagine, you know, before before Jesus, there were quite a few Israelites who kind of thought that the riches of God, like, ended at their boundaries. (laughs) Like, like, this is ours, and we're really glad to have it, and too bad for you guys who are outside in the dark. Paul says, turns out, it's not limited to Abraham's DNA relatives. The boundless riches of Christ, they are without boundary. They extend beyond the family of Abraham, the the physical genetic family, to the nations. And then you get this, verse 9. Paul is a servant of the gospel in order to make everyone see. Got any everyone's in here? That's all of us, by the way. So this is for you. He wants you to see this. In order to make everyone see what is the plan. Anybody want to know the plan? No one wants to know the plan. None of you want it. Like, they're just like, I don't care what the plan is. I want to know the plan. I love plans. I like to know what the plans are. Everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages 
in God who created all things. Anybody want to know the plan? Amen if you want to know the plan. All right. It's not that early in the morning. Come on. Here's the plan. Through the church, we're the church. This has everything to do with us. Through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, Paul, break that down for us, okay? Through the church, multi-ethnic people that Paul's been describing for almost a chapter, through chapter 2 and 3, through the church, the rich variety of the wisdom of God is now being manifest, displayed, amplified, magnified, revealed to this group he calls authorities and powers. So we've talked a lot about the variety of the church in this passage. We need to spend a little bit of time talking about the variety of the wisdom of God, and then we'll talk about those authorities that he's getting into, because that gets kind of crazy. So we'll, uh, we'll get there in a second. Rich variety of the wisdom of God. We don't always get into Greek words in sermons, but today I want to hit you with one. You ready for it? I bet you've not heard this one before. Palu poikolos. Anybody want to try to say that? Didn't think so. Try to spell it. It's even worse. So that's what's translated rich variety. What's interesting about this is Paul could have just said poikolos, which just means variety. And we would have thought, yeah, the variety of the wisdom of God. But that's not an, like just the word variety of the, God, the wisdom of God isn't enough to really get at the variety of the wisdom of God. So he takes that little prefix, palu, which means much, many, many, like lots and lots and lots of it. And he sticks that on the front so that we don't lose sight of the fact that the wisdom of God is more richly beautiful than we've even begun to consider. The rich variety of the wisdom of God. And so take just a minute to think about what Paul is getting here. This word, polypoikolos, it's the word that you would use to describe the gardens you're working on for spring. Anybody started yet? And you want flowers of a variety of colors, don't you? Unless you're me and you like low-maintenance things, then you just one will be fine and I'm good with that. I don't want to have to do a lot of, a lot of weeding and all. But a good, serious gardener is going to take, you know, the reds and the blues and the purples and the pinks and just kind of weave them together into this rich tapestry of color, I think, right? Gardeners, help me, anyone? Flip says yes, all right. That's polypoikolos. Rich variety, and it's rich in its beauty because if, well, if they were all red, it would be pretty, would it? Like we see gardens, and occasionally, you know, I'll, we'll go and, you know, you'll go to Callaway Gardens or Bellingrath Gardens, or when I was doing my uh, studies in England in Cheltenham, there was this mag- massive garden right in the middle of the city center, and it was just spe- like, like every color you could imagine. And when you're there, you think, well, you know, if they were all the same color, it wouldn't be quite so impressive. I mean, sure, it'd be impressive, but it wouldn't be as impressive. Paul's saying, when you, th- like, when you see the beauty of that garden in springtime, with all of its rich, many-splendored variety, you are beginning to imagine the beauty of the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is not stuck in a rut. God's wisdom is not monochrome. God's wisdom is not narrow. God's wisdom is not 
simple. His wisdom is not something you can just kind of take and articulate in a theology book. His wisdom is marked by rich variety. And if God's wisdom is marked by rich variety, Paul says it can only be embodied and magnified by a church that is marked by rich variety. Why does God want an ethnically diverse church? Because the diversity of God's people magnifies the variety of God's wisdom. And if his people are monochrome, then the world doesn't get a really serious vision of what his wisdom looks like. That's the logic of Ephesians 2 and 3. That's what motivates Paul. He wants the powers, both visible and invisible, to see the variety of the wisdom of God. That's the most important thing. But if the people of God is composed only of the Jews, you won't see it. Got to bring in some Greeks, some Scythians. You know any Scythians? Bring in some Romans. Got to bring in some Americans. Maybe some Irish people. Maybe some Africans. Maybe some Chinese, right? Maybe blacks and whites and all of the rich variety of the wisdom of God. I can't help but think about this with a, I can't help but think of the Trinity when I think about this passage. And Paul, his thought is thoroughly Trinitarian. In the opening of Genesis, Ephesians, Genesis, Ephesians 1, we hear about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And he talks about the Father and he talks about Christ. And then at the end of the prologue, we hear about the seal of the promise, Holy Spirit. And so you've got this Father, Son, Jesus, Holy Spirit framework. The whole letter is set in that framework. We read the end of chapter 3 earlier, just a few minutes ago. Every, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Grant that you may be, I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being by the power through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Paul's thinking is thoroughly Trinitarian. And over the years, the church has given us very helpful language to sort of be able to talk about the Trinity sensibly, right? And we use the language of being and persons. And when we talk about God's unity, we use the language of being. So God is one being in three persons. Not three persons. Yes, not three beings. Sorry, this gets, gets tongue-tied on this. It's like a tongue twister. Trinitarian tongue twister, something like that. Not three beings, not three different gods, one being. There is one God. Paul never, ever, 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 he insists, he always insists that God is one. God is one, one being. And yet, when Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, we see a new relationship we didn't know about before, the Father and the Son. They both share that same Godness, one divine being, whatever it is to be God, they both got it. Yet they're different. Because you can't, like the Father's not the Son and the Son is not the Father. So there's unity, 
But there's distinction. And then Jesus says in John's Gospel, I'm going to send another one like myself. And the Spirit is the Lord. And so you've got another person who participates in that Godness, whatever it is to be God, all three of them have it together. And they share perfectly eternity and glory and majesty and power and holiness and wisdom and all, all of those things they participate in together. And yet the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. Unity and distinction. Unity and diversity. Unity and variety. And so when I read what Paul's saying about a church, God wants a certain kind of people. He wants one people in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. Unity. Like there's only one people of God. It's not, hey, you got Jewish people of God over here and Gentile people of God over here, right? God is not a tribal deity. They had lots of tribal deities in the ancient world. If you were to roll into Ephesus, you know, every household would have the gods that they revere. And then if you needed to get, if you were sick and you needed a little bit of healing, you'd go down to the temple of Asclepius because that's where the doctors hang out. And you'd drop a pinch of incense or make a little sacrifice and they'd do what they do and heal you up real nice and quick. And then, you know, if... You just There's all these different kinds of deities, and they had different spheres, and they didn't really care if you worshipped another one. They just didn't want to be neglected themselves. And Paul, and, 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 and Paul wants everyone to know that the Creator God is not like that. There's only one of Him, and if there's only one of Him, He only has one people. You don't get a little group over there that's got you know, His people, and a group over here, and there's one people in Christ, in the Spirit, unity, singular, one. And yet, if God is varied in His wisdom, and if He is three in His person, then His people also need to tell the world that story too. How do they tell that story? Paul says, Jew plus Gentile. An ethnically diverse church tells the world the truth about God. An ethnically diverse church tells the world the truth about the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being three persons. An ethnically diverse church tells the world the truth about who God is. Why does God want a diverse church? Because the diversity of God's people magnifies the variety of God's wisdom. And it's good for us to see the full variety of God's wisdom. You want to be whole? Set your eyes on the wisdom of God. You want to be full? Set your eyes on the wisdom of God. You want to experience the good life? Give yourself to the wisdom of God and bask in His rich variety, in the boundless riches of the pleasures of Christ. But you'll never get where you need to be and where you want to be in a monochrome setting. It's impossible. The people of God must have a variety that embodies the variety of the wisdom of God. Now here's the next thing I want to say. All of that that we just said for the last 15 or so minutes is why the devil loves racism. Can I say that one more time? All of that 
Because an ethnically diverse people of God embody, magnify, and amplify the beauty of the wisdom of God. That's why Satan loves racism. If our enemy can keep the people of God divided across those boundaries, ethnic boundaries, language boundaries, skin color boundaries, then the world will not see the rich variety of the wisdom of God as it should. Let that sink in for a second. This is why Paul says, the church exists. Like, this is your purpose. This is the plan. The church exists so that the rich variety of God's wisdom, the many-splendored garden with flowers of every color you can imagine and a few you can't, that sort of variety gets proclaimed to a certain group the group, he is told, tells us, is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is one of the ways that Paul talks about spiritual forces. Like, so these are demonic forces. These are the kind of uh, Satan and his demons. And I get like, I don't always like to talk about those guys, but Paul is saying these are the negative powers in the cosmos that we can't see but are at work and functioning. They hate the glory of God. They hate the wisdom of God. And they want to keep Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11, the most segregated hour of the week, so that the church and the world and they themselves will not have to gaze upon the beauty of the wisdom of God. Can I say this? The racism thing that's happening in the U.S. and the world right now isn't primarily about Republicans and Democrats. They get involved. They're pawns. Congress is a pawn in the hands of forces that cannot be seen. There's some goodwill people out there. There's some bad-willed people out there. At the end of the day... They are pawns in a battle they cannot see. Paul says later in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood. They are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. They're the mission, actually. <laughs> like Anybody with a body is the mission. The enemy are these defeated forces, and yes, they are defeated because the Lord Jesus Christ, who rode into Jerusalem, hailed King of the Jews on Palm Sunday, now sits enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. They are defeated foes, but they are scrapping to the end. And they want to stick their thumb in divisiveness and Make us not want to pay attention. And ah, it's just frustrating because they're saying crazy things. And I'm getting blamed. And I'm getting accused of things that I've never... Like I want... I, we know what this feels like. And all of it is a plot from hell to keep us from living into our purposes to embody the rich variety of the wisdom of God. I'll tell you about a colleague of mine in the Mississippi Conference. He uh, was doing his doctor of ministry at Wesley Biblical Seminary. 
and he wanted to start a prayer. Like He's looking around, he's saying, you know, a lot of churches aren't real intentional about prayer. So let's figure out some intentional prayer strategies. And uh, he said, where, where do we need prayer where we don't have it? And so they called up some city council members and said, what can we, can we like, can we pray together? And they went down to the police station, the fire department said, can we just come pray for you once a week? He called up, he's a white guy, he called up some black pastors in the county and said, hey, you guys want to get together and pray? Can we do that? Guess what? They did. Um, this guy finished his research program. Guess what they're still doing? They're still praying together. South Mississippi, white pastors and black pastors are praying together. They've even had some joint worship services and begun to share mission. To make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that the church, through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That pastor is doing this work. I struggle to find the words to help us see that when we get ourselves bogged down in the politics of these conflicts, then we are playing into the hands of the enemy. That's all there is to it. I don't want to play that game. I have no interest in being a pawn in anyone's cosmic battle. I don't know about you. I want to embody the rich variety of the wisdom of God. This is one reason I'm really excited about the future of the Wesleyan Methodist tradition. Some of you may have heard a few weeks ago they announced a new denomination called the Global Methodist Church. Um, the United Methodist Church is in the midst of schism. It's taken a little bit longer for it to work its way out than some of us would have appreciated, but it's happening. And chances are in 2022, a new Methodist denomination will be formed, and uh, churches like this one will likely shift into the new one, and it will be called the Global Methodist Church. And the African bishops have already said, many of them, we're in. And the Philippine bishops have already said, we're in. There's some Russians. They're in too. I'm really excited about the future of a denomination, a church, that says we want to embody exactly what Ephesians 3.10 says is God's plan for his people. That's what we've got to look forward to, friends. The hard part, <laughs> if you ask the guys and gals who are building this new denomination, they tell you it's a really hard job. The hard part is going to be taking that global reality into local communities. That's where it gets crazy hard. That's where those authorities and rulers in the heavenly places get really, really anxious and antagonistic. This is what Jesus died to do. If we ignore it, 
we ignore is passion. It's Passion Week. Good Friday's coming. As we read those passages of Matthew about Jesus' trial and his betrayal, his crucifixion, his death on Friday night, and we'll extinguish candles as we go and we'll consider the work that he's done, we must remember that he died to do this. He died to create a certain kind of people. So here's the exhortation. Don't waste your life. Not the first pastor to say that. It's an exhortation we all need to hear. We get one shot, friends. I heard a pastor say yesterday, you don't roll around to the end, 74, 75 of a ministry or a career, and get to press reset like you do on your video games. We got one shot. One. And we have to decide whether we will waste it with frivolous nonsense or whether we will be prisoners of Christ. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.